All right, why, why don't we go ahead and get started? <clears throat> so if I can, is this thing working? Hello, hello. Yeah, it's on. Hello. Let's settle, settle the crowd down. People are excited. All right, so um, I'm Brian Marsh. I'm the second chief for infectious disease and international health. And people hear me okay? The mic is working? Yeah, someone wave in the back row. Yeah, good. All right, so um, yeah, my pleasure to welcome everyone to Medical Grand Rounds this morning. Uh, this morning we have the pleasure of hearing from the newest member of the infectious disease faculty, Dr. Michael Calderwood, who joined us uh, in July of this year, just a few months ago. Um, Michael uh, uh, was in college at Harvard, then he went to my alma mater for medical school, University of Chicago, before coming back to Boston, where he uh, remained until we lured him away. So he was in the Harvard system for his training, uh, residency, infectious disease fellowship, uh, uh, MPH degree, uh, and then joined the faculty at the Brigham uh, in, what, 2014 or so? something like that earlier, some, sometime around then. Was on the faculty there for a few years uh, where he was assistant professor of medicine. As I say, we recruited him to join us July of this year. And Michael joins us uh, with two roles primarily. Uh, one is as an infectious disease clinician where he has already demonstrated his skills. And then also as our second hospital epidemiologist, his main uh, academic and clinical interests resolve, revolve around hospital epidemiology, infection prevention, and antimicrobial stewardship, uh, uh, all of which he was very engaged with and active uh, when at the Brigham, uh, both at the Brigham and on the national scene. Uh, and so he joins us, as I say, as our second hospital epidemiologist, working with uh, Dr. Antonio Altamare, who uh, uh, is in her last day with us, sitting in the front row here, before taking a little bit of time off to have her second child. Um, so uh, we're delighted Michael is here no matter what, especially <laughs> with Antonia's time away. Um, so uh, Michael's particular role, in addition to being um, very active on this campus, uh, around epidemiology and stewardship <clears throat> is to develop a regional approach to antimicro to, sorry to uh, hospital epidemiology and transitioning into also stewardship <clears throat> for uh, the the DH wide system for all of our affiliates uh, that don't have the kind of uh, resources that we do uh, um, for our uh, infection prevention programs. And so a fairly daunting project to try to bring on uh, very disparate organizations from critical access hospitals to an academic medical center under one umbrella and uh, just starting on that road. And we wish him a lot of luck on it. Uh, his speech today, speech, his talk today is um, on battling Clostridium difficile infection, lessons from the front lines of an explosive epidemic. So uh, a topic that uh, is pertinent to his interest in prevention and stewardship. So I'll hand off to Michael after saying one more thing. Um, the code for CME for this session is X, big X, E as an elephant, Z as in zebra, seven, the number seven. All right, very good. Michael. Great. 
Thank you, Brian. Good morning. So I have a, a fair amount to get through. I will start with the uh, requisite slides stating that I have uh, no disclosures. The objectives today are to go through um, a fair bit of the, the epidemiology as it's been evolving and as we've learned more about the scope of this disease um, over the last few years, as well as um, some of the, the risk factors and um, zeroing in on some of those that are uh, most modifiable. In addition, we'll discuss uh, clinical decision making um, and the evolving literature and some standardized uh, practice that we'd like to roll out across uh, the hospital. And finally, uh, touch on strategies for preventing the spread of disease within healthcare settings. So in 2012, the CDC published a report that looked at the rise in CDC and uh, C. difficile deaths in the United States and really uh, focused in on this being a, a big killer of uh, those who are age 65 and older. And it was at that point the 18th leading cause of death in that age group. Now, as the data began to evolve, that number went from the data published in 2012 to what came out in 2013 and then 2015 with the New England Journal of Medicine paper from the CDC showing that we're approaching 30,000 deaths per year from C. difficile infection. Well, in 2013, they raised the flag and said this was a uh, five alarm fire urgent threat and the deaths have doubled since that time and when you go to DEFCON 5, I'm not sure where you go from there, but it's clearly worse. And it's not necessarily that we are seeing more C. difficile. Um, some institutions are, um, and uh, we clearly have plateaued. Uh, nationally, we're um, not on the decline. Um, we really, for a number of years, have been holding steady. But it's that we're realizing the scope of the problem. And we had focused for a long time on the uh, light gray, which is the um, kind of healthcare onset or hospital onset C. difficile. But there's a large number of patients that actually don't manifest the disease until after they leave the hospital. There's also a large number of patients that are in uh, nursing homes. And while we have a bias that we think that everyone who gets sick in a nursing home actually gets sent to the hospital, you know, 72 percent of these patients are actually treated in the nursing home and never hospitalized. And so this was not in the CDC numbers for a while because a lot of the reporting comes from acute care hospitals. And then there's also a large um, community associated uh, C. difficile. Some of these patients are hospitalized, some are not. The ones that are hospitalized actually are a big driver of contamination of the environment spread in the hospital setting. And so it's clear as your number of um, community associated C. difficile infections go up, so do your rates of hospital onset C. difficile. And so if you really want to attack the problem, you need to be getting at antimicrobial use across the full spectrum of healthcare. It right now is um, listed as uh, enemy number one on the CDC list. It is the most commonly reported uh, pathogen. It has uh, risen above uh, reported cases of Staph aureus. It's higher than Klebsiella. It's higher than E. coli. Costs about $4.8 billion, and that's just taking acute care hospital costs uh, into account, does not account for uh, community costs, for nursing home costs. 
And well, the uh, relapse rate um, is about 18% of those cases. Those 18% cost about 58% of that 4.8 billion. And so if you look within a year of the first recurrence, patients on average are retested 4.4 more times, receive 2.5 more treatment courses, 84% require hospitalization, and 6% require colectomy. And not included in this is the increasing number they're now going for uh, fecal transplantation. So a number of risk factors, um, I will zero in on two of them. The major modifiable risk factors we think about are antimicrobial exposure and exposure to, to healthcare or, or the environment. Um, now, obviously, we know about advanced age, and I showed some of the data about uh, kind of the increasing uh, death rates and uh, those that are 65 and older. Underlying illnesses is somewhat vague and, and, and meant to be, but comorbidities, immunosuppression. There has been a link to tube feeds, um, and then really an increasing literature on a link to uh, PPIs, and I think that that question mark is getting to the point where it can be uh, removed, and so there really is, there's been an explosion in the amount of PPIs that have been used uh, in this country. Some of them quite appropriately, um, but some that just get left on indefinitely, and this is a clear risk factor, and we'll talk about why that might be. Um, if you go back to the 1990s, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on exposure to antibiotics within kind of 14 days. Really, the, the more recent data looks at a three-month window. And within three months of receiving antibiotics, your risk of C. difficile is about seven to tenfold um, higher than the, the general population. And if we look at the antibiotics uh, that are commonly associated, um, you know, we oftentimes hear about clindamycin, but really just as risky as clindamycin are the cephalosporins and the fluoroquinolones uh, that we use quite a lot uh, in, in, in the hospital setting. And I've recently actually brought carapenems over to uh, this, this list because there um, was a really nice uh, paper in the Lancet uh, uh, ID that just came out this month that really uh, put the nail in the coffin on that one and linked in carapenems. For a long time, we had insufficient data, uh, but they're just as risky as any of these others. Now, the cephalosporins and the fluoroquinolones uh, we'll come back to because when we think about efforts to reduce C. difficile, most of the literature is focused on reductions in those two antibiotics, and so I'll come back to that. But it's actually, it's not just which antibiotics, it's the number of antibiotics as well. And so you can see here that as patients get on one antibiotic, two antibiotics, three or more antibiotics, you see an escalating rate of C. difficile. And so this comes back to the discussion of, do you really need that second gram-negative agent? Is that fluoroquinolone, that levofloxacin, really buying you anything? And you want to think about the pros and cons in that decision-making. But the other thing that's come out is that ward-based prescribing practices um, are a driver of C. difficile. And what we know is that there's a higher risk of C. difficile if a patient is on a ward um, that has C. difficile. So, you know, even if that patient's not receiving antibiotics, being um, on a ward where another patient has C. difficile, but there's also a higher risk if the patient that was in the room before you had gotten antibiotics. They don't have to have had C. difficile. Just by getting antibiotics, they're more likely to be colonized, more likely to be shedding, and there's a risk to that antibiotic then causing a risk to the next patient going into that room. And finally, infection rates go up as ward occupancy increases, 
And this is the pressure on room turnover, how we are not adequately cleaning the rooms. We're trying to get patients out of the hospital and the next patient in. And we really have to get back to the basics and think about how well we are cleaning these rooms. And the reason for this is that the level of contamination is high. We detect C. difficile in 50% of sampled sites in rooms from symptomatic patients. It takes less than 10 spores for uh, an infection to uh, come on. And the environmental persistence is long. These spores can survive for five months, most commonly on the floors and bed rails, but I'll also comment that we oftentimes are looking on uh, toilet handles uh, and inadequately cleaned uh, commodes that are in the room. Um, so not uh, surprising, but those are areas where you're going to find this. And the other thing that's important to point out is that two-thirds of C. difficile is actually transmitted via ward-based contamination rather than a direct link to a symptomatic uh, patient. And so it's oftentimes things that are persisting in the environment. And this brings us to asymptomatic colonization. Where is all this C. difficile coming from? So we have a large enough audience here that there are some of us here that are colonized with C. difficile. The general population, that's 5%. So one out of 20 adults are colonized with a toxigenic C. difficile. It's mostly transient. There are a smaller population that are persistently colonized with the same strain. By the time you get to hospitalization, the patients walking in the door, getting rolled in the door, who've had more exposure to the healthcare setting, one out of 10 of those patients are going to be colonized with C. difficile. And if you look in studies mostly in critical care settings, that number can get up to about 20% during hospitalization. Most of these are asymptomatic. But this will come back when we're talking about PCR testing. What are we really detecting? Because we need to be cognizant of this high rate of colonization. The other thing I'll highlight is that, yes, prolonged hospitalization is a risk factor. But you see that 60% of the cases actually acquired C. difficile in their first two weeks of admission. And so even, you know, one-week admission, two-week admission, these patients are getting C. difficile. We have to be thinking about it from the get-go. So that brings me to clinical decision-making. And if you think about clinical decision-making, the first thing you want to think about is pathog pathogenesis. So patient first is ingesting a spore, may be transmitted on the hands of a healthcare worker. It may be picked up from the environment, that bed rail, those curtains in the room. It then germinates into a vegetative form after passing through the stomach, and that's actually where the PPI comes in. And it's thought that if you have higher rates of um, acidity in the stomach, that actually is going to uh, lower the rate of passage uh, into, the, uh, in, into the distal GI tract. Um, and when you're on a PPI, that, that's not happening. Most people do fine with that. So all of us are being exposed to, to, to C. diff. The issue is when you've disrupted the microbiome because of antibiotics that you're taking, and C. difficile is resistant to most of those antibiotics. And so uh, it is what is going to replace your normal microbiome. And then when it begins to proliferate, you have the production of toxins that lead to colonic damage. And the point that's raised here is really that the toxins lead to TNF-alpha, to uh, increase pro-inflammatory interleukins, and this leads to vascular permeability. And that vascular permeability leads to uh, the uh, breakthrough and release of neutrophils and macrophages and uh, the formation of a pseudomembrane. 
The reason I mention that is actually that vascular permeability is critical when we think about the therapeutic choices. So I just want to keep that picture in your mind because it's going to come into the fecal concentrations of the drugs and why we're going to make some recommendations that we do. So you think a patient has C. diff, you want to test them. Historically, the gold standard has been a toxigenic stool culture. Now the problem with this, it's a, it's a great test, but it's labor intensive, requires special equipment, special training, and it takes 48 to 96 hours to return a result. So this fell out of favor. And we went with the enzyme immunoassay. This is the toxin test that you get back is positive or negative. Rapid, simple, used for many years. The concern was that there was a, a, a variety of sensitivities reported in the literature. Most are actually now erring towards the higher end of that range, but because of that low sensitivity of 66%, there was this feeling that you had to send two, three C. diff tests before you could really say this was or was not C. diff. So that led to the PCR, and the PCR has a better sensitivity. It is rapid. The problem with it is it can lead to false positive results. And what you're detecting is the presence of a gene for the production of toxin. It's not actually saying that there's any toxin production going on. And again, if you have 10% of patients coming in the door that are colonized with C. diff, you have to be thoughtful about whether or not the patients you're sending this test on actually have symptomatic disease. Now, we do a two-step testing. The first is to get an antigen and a toxin. If both those are positive, this is C. difficile infection. If you have a discordance, which is usually antigen positive uh, and toxin negative, then the PCR is the arbiter in that uh, debate. If both those tests are negative, you get a toxin and a PCR that is negative, the negative predictive value of that is 99%. You do not need to be retesting. You can trust these results. Now, the positive predictive value depends on the presence of clinical symptoms. If you're not sending this on a patient that has a pretest probability that's high for C. diff, the positive predictive value is going to be fairly low. So that comes to our new testing policy. Many of you know this. It went live in, in August of this year. We're looking for patients that have three or more loose or watery stools within a 24-hour period with some clinical symptomatology suggestive of C. difficile infection. That's actually the IDSA um, definition of C. difficile. It's actually backed by some data. Um, if you look at people that use the gold standard, so toxigenic stool culture, looking at hospital onset C. difficile cases, the median number of bowel movements in a 24-hour period was five. The interquartile range was four to seven. Can you have hospital onset C. difficile with less than three stools? Yes, and if you have a high enough clinical suspicion, we will test it. But you do see here that you really have to have a lot of stool for this to be high on your radar. We also know that um, 29 to 39% of patients tested for C. difficile in national studies have not had clinically significant diarrhea, and it's thought to actually be a, an underestimate. We don't have good documentation in the charts of stool consistency. And in fact, one hospital found that they had reported 15% um, of their cases that had been tested inappropriate. And the reason this is important is that we now publicly report this data, and so patients can go and look at your hospital and say, oh, I don't want to go there. The C. diff rate is really high. 
but it actually also has a financial impact. We, we um, are, it rolls up into a quality metric, and this determines what the hospital is paid. And so we want to be thoughtful about what we're reporting. Is that really the harm we're causing patients, or are we over-testing? So let's look at some of our data. We looked in the last year at the patients that uh, had a PCR positive result, uh, toxin negative result. Majority did not have three plus stools, uh, did not, uh, many had received laxatives in the prior 24 hours. Uh, most did not have fever, and over 50% actually didn't have leukocytosis. And so this is being reviewed now, um, and so you may be getting calls about testing in the setting of laxative use. Um, nurses are being asked to document the stool consistency uh, in a better manner. And right now, we are not uh, performing testing on patients that have received laxatives in the past 48 hours. Um, we are uh, not repeating if you've had a negative test in the past seven days or if you've had a positive test in the past 14 days. There's always the ability to override this decision. It just requires a clinical discussion. Now, the reason that we don't test for cure is that asymptomatic shedding of spores can persist for out to six weeks. And so the facility that calls and says they want a test of cure, the answer is no. Our testing uses a two-step algorithm with a PCR. We know that that has a high likelihood of being positive, and we're going to go based on clinic, clinical symptomatology. Now, the alternative diagnostic is the smell test. My favorite is the beagle. A trained beagle has a very good nose, sensitivity and specificity. What does unfortunately not have a good nose, and I don't mean to pick on nurses here because there's another study which used physicians as well, the, well, it smells like C. diff. No. It actually, unfortunately, is a 50-50 if someone tells you that it smells like C. diff. That's not a reason to send a test. So let's get to treatment. So treatment for a long time has focused on metronidazole for mild and moderate disease and reserving vancomycin for more severe cases. I'm going to make an argument that in hospitalized patients, we need to be evolving towards vancomycin for all. I'm going to show why that is. So the recommendation for vancomycin in severe disease is based on um, really one randomized controlled trial. And you see here that there definitely is a benefit and cure in vancomycin versus metronidazole. Now, if you look at the mild disease, well, it didn't meet clinical significance. You definitely did have more uh, cure in the vancomycin group. And that's actually consistent with two prior randomized control trials that were in the pre-NAP1 era, where vancomycin was always found to have higher rates of cure, but the numbers were never powered to reach significance. The other thing is that the 2007 RCT only looked for clinical cure out to 21 days. And so I'm going to talk about the relapse rates and the higher relapse rates with, with metronidazole. In addition, all three of these RCTs had less than 50 patients per arm. And you would actually need to have more than 160 per arm if you were really trying to power to look for this difference. Now, despite this, we know that nationally there's been a shift towards a higher proportion of providers using oral vancomycin, even for mild to moderate disease. And the vast majority of ID physicians actually favor oral vancomycin for all cases. Now, this one is actually stolen from Carlos Del Rio at Emory, 
He says vancomycin is what he would give his mother. Metronidazole is what he would give his mother-in-law. <laughs> For my wife, if she's in the audience, I would give our mother, my, your mother, uh, vancomycin. <laughs> so, I do agree that uh, there was no significant difference in terms of refractory disease, death, or length of stay in looking at metronidazole versus vancomycin. But oral vancomycin is more cost-effective due to a higher recurrence and readmission risk when using oral metronidazole, even in cases of mild to moderate disease. And this has really evolved over time as we've seen the um, uh, more aggressive ribotypes. People often talk about NAP1 or O27 ribotype. There's also an O01 ribotype. But you can see that if you look in uh, the post-NAP1 kind of era, which is shown here in the 2003 to 2004, you have high recurrence rates which either, with either drug. But you definitely see higher recurrence rates with metronidazole. In addition, we've seen an increasing number of providers that are switching. They start on metronidazole, realizes a disappointing response, and then switch to oral vancomycin. And there are a couple of reasons for this. And the first is the fecal concentration issue. If you think about the absorption of metronidazole, this is one of the drugs that we says has an equivalent oral and IV bioavailability. That's because 99% of this drug is absorbed in the proximal small intestine. Well, it needs to get to the colon in order to be active. And the way it gets there is when you have the vascular permeability because of colitis. Well, if you look at fecal concentrations over time, as the diarrhea resolves, you're getting less and less drug that are actually being delivered to the site of disease. <clears throat> now, in the case of vancomycin, you actually have inhibitory concentrations of the drug all the way through uh, the end of treatment and four to five days after the completion of treatment. Oral vancomycin is not absorbed. It all stays in the intestine, in the colon. Now, explanation two is that there's actually some increasing metronidazole resistance or heteroresistance. We know that there have been increasing MICs over time. In addition, there was one study that recently was published out of the Middle East where they saw that one in 33 cases of their hospital onset C. diff was actually resistant to metronidazole. We are not seeing that yet here, but this is on the horizon and something we should be aware of. In addition, because of this diminishing fecal concentration, we might begin to see MIC creep having a greater impact on clinical outcomes. And the two kind of come together, two explanations merging. And then, because I'm a hospital epidemiologist, I don't want to forget about the infection control argument. Oral vancomycin-treated patients are more likely to have undetectable levels of C. difficile at day five of treatment, and more likely to have resolution of their diarrhea at day five of treatment. And so we should have less environmental contamination. So there must be a downside, right? People haven't been using this drug. Why is that? For a long time, there was this concern about a link to VRE. One study has actually shown that metronidazole probably poses just as much risk. But more recent data actually shows that the preferential use of vancomycin, more and more hospitals are using this across the board for all cases, and have not seen rates of VRE on the rise. The second argument, obviously, has been what it costs. And this is one we should be thoughtful about. Um, if you look at the costs here at the hospital, um, a day of therapy of metronidazole is a dollar. A day of therapy of compounded liquid vancomycin is $2.71. I list here the um, 
grape solution compounding kit as the one you can actually get from the DHMC pharmacy. If you are going to send your patient home on oral vancomycin, get it from our pharmacy or make sure that they can get it from a compounding pharmacy. The cost issue is one that we need to be thoughtful of if you're going to send them and get the pills. The pills are expensive, but we can easily give them the cheap compounded liquid from our pharmacy. The revision of the uh, C. difficile guidelines from IDSA are coming out this year. The guideline committee has told me that they're planning to list um, both P.O. Banco and P.O. Metronidazole for mild disease. This was a heavy point of uh, debate. They're not going to list a preference, and the reason is that there's still a concern about the cost in hospitals that are not using the liquid formulation. Uh, but most of the guideline committee members for the same data I've shown here did have a preference for vancomycin. So if we look at our own data, um, I looked uh, at the data from uh, August uh, 15 to July 16. 53% of the patients who tested positive for C. difficile got orovancomycin, but that, mean it, that meant at least 47% were treated with orometronidazole. And so we still have a lot of orometronidazole use. And if we look at what our section is recommending, we're recommending orovancomycin for all patients with C. difficile, regardless of severity. And this is really focused on the inpatient population, not talking about metronidazole in the, in the ambulatory setting. What about dosing recommendations? You do not need doses more than 125 milligrams every um, uh, QID. The reason for that is that that dose gets fecal concentrations that are well above the MIC-90 and well above the highest MIC ever reported for C. difficile. Now, people will argue about the 250 and the 500 dosing, and the reason for that is that there was one study that showed higher fecal concentrations in the first 48 hours with the 250 milligram dosing. And so in critically ill patients, we sometimes will reach for that higher dosing. Now, the odd part to me about this study is why you had higher fecal concentrations with 250, but you did not with 500. Um, and so, this is the literature as it is, but why there sometimes is an argument in the first few days for using a higher dose. And what about IV metronidazole? Um, this is the study that really led to that. The addition of IV metronidazole to Orovanco was associated with significant improved mortality in critically ill patients. A lot of this is thought to be a drug delivery in patients that have severe disease. We have uh, ileus. You don't have the orovancomycin getting to the site of infection. That's the reason we use uh, rectally infused vancomycin at times, um, and the IV metronidazole, because of the uh, vascular leakage, is getting to that site. So that, that's the reason for the IV metronidazole. There is some data, though, that the combined therapy of vanco and metronidazole actually leads to worse disruption of the microbiome, so we should not be using this across the board. This is really for severe disease. There are some good guidelines on um, when to consider surgical intervention. We typically are looking at the point of 48 to 72 hours of appropriate therapy where the patient um, remains with uh, kind of significant um, symptoms that would be consistent with uh, uh, sepsis. And the problem is a lot of these patients at that point are not good operative candidates. And so this is a um, discussion that needs to be had with our surgical colleagues about the pros and cons uh, of, of intervention. There have been a number of um, recent looks at alternatives to this. I'll come to fecal transplant in a minute. Um, for a while, people were favoring a loop ileostomy approach with uh, flushing uh, of the toxin um, 
from uh, the, uh, the proximal end of the, the colon that uh, was uh, basically seemed to fall out of uh, favor with a recent randomized control trial. But we're looking for better kind of operative interventions. There are some indications for emergent surgery. Obviously, patients with peritonitis, perforation, toxic megacolon, um, we're not waiting the 48 to 72 hours in these cases. These are, these are significant cases. There's limited experience here at this hospital. It has been done a couple of times. Um, other hospitals have published their data, uh, two publications worth reviewing there from 2015, about the use of fecal microbiota transplantation. Um, I have seen it used successfully in two of my patients. Uh, it oftentimes requires uh, sequential um, colonoscopy, and so you get to the sigmoid colon on the first pass. You wait three to five days, go, and you probably get to the transverse colon, and you may have to do a third one where you get all the way uh, to the ascending colon. Um, but in cases where um, these are very sick patients, this saves surgery and actually has been shown to save colectomy. So it's worth thinking about this as uh, kind of the future of practice. And then finally, um, in non-surgical candidates, there is increasing literature about the success uh, when you add tigacycline. Um, and uh, that is something I have not done, but I have a number of colleagues that have done. Um, and so something that ID can have in their pocket, this is something that you wouldn't be doing on your own. What about fidaxomycin and, and fecal transplant outside of the uh, severe uh, patient? So fidaxomycin, I will admit, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, the uh, fidaxomycin study in the New England Journal, you know, here does show that you have lower recurrence rates. This is why it's been argued. If you focus in on the table from the New England Journal paper, um, really the lower recurrence was in the non-NAP1 strains. And where we're seeing the higher recurrence is in the NAP1 strains. And fidaxomycin doesn't have a benefit over vancomycin in that group. In addition, it's extremely expensive. Um, and a cost analysis actually showed that fidaxomycin would have to be priced at less than $150 to be cost effective. And currently, it's estimated to cost uh, about $44 million per quality adjusted life year. And that's based on a cost of a course that's over $3,000. Um, so uh, I have. Use this in a couple of cases, and I have to admit, uh, in my small sample size, have not found it to be very successful. However, fecal transplant is something uh, where I have drunk the Kool-Aid, and I think that this is uh, really successful. Um, these rates of 80 to 90 percent uh, success are what's been seen uh, nationally. They're similar to what's been seen here. Uh, Dr. Levy uh, has done about 100 uh, fecal transplants here. The success rate at uh, DH is estimated to be about 80 percent. Uh, his recommendations or guidelines are the patient needs to have completed at least two courses of vancomycin, one as a taper. And again, the GI service will consider uh, an inpatient on uh, individual case-by-case uh, -case discussions. What about prophylactic therapy to prevent recurrent C. difficile? The 2010 guidelines uh, said that the evidence was unclear, was unknown, whether this reduces infection. If you were going to do it, they recommended oral vancomycin for the same reasons we've discussed, that you don't get therapeutic levels of metronidazole in patients that don't have active colitis. But now we have a study that's published this fall that actually begins to give us some evidence here. And so this was looking at patients that had a prior history of C. diff, giving them um, oral vancomycin. They used 125 BID and 250 BID while they were on systemic antibiotics most getting seven days beyond the completion of systemic antibiotics, and compared these to patients not getting that prophylaxis. 
And you see here that the rate of recurrence in the prophylaxis group is significantly lower with an odds ratio of 0.12. You see a p-value that's very significant. And so our section is actually now recommending that patients that have a history of C. diff in the prior 90 days that are readmitted and started on necessary high-risk antibiotics, now obviously you have to think, is the antibiotic necessary or not? But if it is, that these patients should be getting 125 POBID of vancomycin for the time period they're on systemic antibiotics and out to seven days beyond the use of those antibiotics. And so that is a change and something we want to make people aware of. And you may be getting calls because we're reviewing these cases and making these recommendations on patients in the hospital. So what about prevention? There are a lot of things that we can do to uh, present C. difficile. The first is to ask, does the patient need antibiotics? And so we have to be thoughtful about which antibiotics we're using. Do they need one antibiotic, two antibiotics, three antibiotics? And hopefully I've shown you the data that more does carry a higher risk. The other issue is that patients that have recurrent disease, and particularly those that have undergone a fecal transplant, are often now being asked to carry a card. And the card says, do not give me antibiotics unless you discuss this with my primary care doctor, with my ID physician, because we have a lot of uh, these patients, when we review the antibiotics they get in their year after fecal transplant, that were given antibiotics that were probably not necessary. And if they've gotten to the point where they've had stool infused via colonoscopy, we really want to be thoughtful about do they need these antibiotics or not. The second is one about testing. Are we testing the appropriate patients? Who are we isolating? Are we putting patients on precautions as soon as we think that the patient has a disease? This is the risk to the roommate. This is being thoughtful about how we're washing our hands. This is the environmental transmission. How are we decontaminating our hospitals? What are we using as our, our cleaning solutions? How often are we cleaning? Are we doing it daily? How are we doing the terminal cleaning? There's a lot of evolving literature uh, in this area. Um, and then the last is kind of alerts that are put in. And you've uh, seen some BPAs that are put into to EDH. Um, but we also get alerts on the infection prevention side, making us aware of these patients, making us aware of patients that have had a recent history of CDF that are readmitted and that are antibiotic. We actually have a, a risk index that we use to, to review these cases and be thoughtful about how we might um, help the, uh, the care teams in uh, uh, thinking about best practice. So a lot of studies, I'm just showing a couple here, but th there have been a multitude of studies showing a link between reductions in high-risk antibiotics, such as fluoroquinolones, third-generation cephalosporins and clindamycins, and reductions in C. difficile infection. And it's estimated that a 30% reduction in broad-spectrum antibiotics would result in a 20%, 26% reduction in C. difficile infections. This year, at this hospital, we are targeting a 15% reduction in C. difficile compared to last year's uh, numbers. And so a big part of this is going to be stewardship. And it's also clear that doing all the things right from an infection prevention side, gowns and gloves, isolating patients, environmental cleaning, if we don't get on top of the antibiotic issue, those are not going to crack the nut. And essentially, you need the two of these together. You need frontline providers being thoughtful about the antibiotics that are being used, along with the best things you can possibly put in place for infection prevention to really make a difference. And here that 
that green is the antibiotic optimization intervention. So they started just focusing on infection prevention, and it wasn't until they, they paired that with uh, antibiotic optimization that they really saw a decline in the C. difficile rates. In addition, really nice uh, work that just was published actually shows that if you can reduce what are called the 4C antibiotics, and this is a European study, which is why it's 4C, they use more Cipro than levofloxacin, and their amoxicillin clavulanate actually starts with the clavulanate first, that's a C, clindamycin and cephalosporins. Similar ones to what you think. If you reduce those antibiotics, you actually see a lower local prevalence of the high-risk ribotypes. These are the 027 and the 001. These are the ones that are causing the more severe disease in hospital settings and spilling over into the community. What about contact precautions? What, what is the evidence? Why do you need to wear gowns and gloves? So we recommend that as soon as you suspect C. difficile, you put the patient in a single room. There are some hospitals that don't have that ability, so they cohort. And that you wear gowns and gloves in order to enter the room. We know that the implementation of a glove policy is associated with an 81% decline in C. difficile infection rates. And the relative risk of C. diff after exposure to a roommate who has C. difficile is 70% higher. And so this is the reason to quickly get these patients separated, have that diarrhea that's contaminating the environment moved into a private room. It's a risk to the patient that's in the room with that patient, um, and it really focuses us on the importance of glove precautions. Now, what about the soap and water debate? One. Oh. Here we go. Okay. Soap and water has been associated with a greater log reduction in spore counts. So this is the debate that happens every year at our national conferences. Do we wash our hands with alcohol-based hand rubs? Do we use soap and water? Yes, soap and water is better. But the distance to the sink is inversely associated with hand hygiene compliance. In addition to that, you need to wash your hands with soap and water for 30 to 60 seconds to remove the spores. How many of you wash your hands for 30 to 60 seconds? Maybe we should, but it's not being done. And so this is the argument that just do something. And if you're going to use the alcohol-based hand rub, that's fine. When you can get to a sink, use the soap and water. There's also this data, and if you take a glass half full look at this data, you'll say that a hospital that introduced alcohol-based hand rub did not see an increase in their C. difficile infection rates. Now, the glass half empty is that they didn't see a decline either. They saw a decline in MRSA and VRE. Um, so they potentially could do better if they were getting everyone to wash with soap and water. But they did not see an increase. Um, and so this has been used as an argument to say, again, do something, and alcohol-based hand rub is the something. Wear gloves. If you do not wear gloves and you come out of the room, spores can be found on the hands of 24% of healthcare workers. 30% of those spores are then shared with your colleagues when you're meeting them in the hall and shaking hands, and with your patients when you walk into the room and say, hello, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Now, the other thing is to wash your hands. For each 10% improvement in hand hygiene compliance, estimated that the hospital onset C. difficile rate is reduced by 14%. Again, we are targeting this year a 15% reduction. 
Our current rate of hand hygiene at the hospital is 80%. If we increase that to 90%, we would get close to that 15% reduction. We would prevent 10 cases of hospital onset C. difficile. These are patients that came to our hospital with something else that ended up getting C. difficile well here. Many of them get very sick, some of them in the ICU, some of them end up with their colon removed. These are preventable events. And so 10 doesn't seem like a big number, but if you're that patient, that's a huge impact on your life. And the final thing I'll mention is to hold off on discontinuing precautions. There is actually data for this. People say, well, the patient's better, they don't need to be on precautions. And yes, I understand, people don't like putting on the gowns and gloves. It's an impact on the patient's quality because they can't come out of the room. The reason that we recommend this is actually that at the end of treatment, there's a rebound. And you actually, this is showing the ability to uh, detect on culture C. difficile in the stool, the skin, in the environment around the patient one to two weeks after treatment, three to four weeks after treatment. And you don't get down to where you were at the end of treatment until five to six weeks after treatment. These are asymptomatic. They don't have recurrent diarrhea, but they are shedding uh, spores into the environment. And this is the reason for continuing contact precautions. Now, if you have a patient that's hospitalized for more than a month, we can re-engage in that discussion. But we can definitely prevent the spread of C. difficile in the healthcare environment if we are continuing the contact precautions all the way through till the end of hospitalization. So that's actually my um, last slide. I'm happy to take any questions uh, that you might have. Thank you. Yes. You're shedding for up to six weeks. What are your recommendations for that patient going home with other family members if they only have one bath with the entire house? So, um, you know, th this is often discussed about uh, the risk of transmission to others in the setting of asymptomatic colonization without diarrhea versus uh, uh, with diarrhea. And so the first thought is, is there diarrhea resolved? The second issue is, um, are members of the household at home um, immunocompromised or otherwise more susceptible to C. difficile? And that clearly is a, a higher risk. If you are at home with other healthy adults um, and everyone is washing their hands with soap and water um, and you don't have actually kind of visible stool uh, in the environment, the risk is fairly low. I emphasize hand hygiene. If there are um, members at home with immunocompromise, uh, then we do have to engage uh, in a discussion on the risks and thinking about uh, what we can do to uh, kind of reduce those risks. There's not a lot you can do other than, than hand washing at home, um, but we are more cognizant and keep a close eye on that. Yep. We have a nice natural experiment in the hospital. We have private and semi-private rooms, and not only shared at the same time asymptomatic patients, but it's hard to do a terminal cleaning of that room because it's always, you know, somebody in there. So, do we have any data to show that the risk is higher if you're in the semi-private versus private room at this hospital? You know, it's a, it's a great question. I have not seen any published literature on that. The hospital of the future is actually moving towards all private rooms. Um, this obviously is an economic discussion, um, but the biologic plausibility is that there's clearly lower risk if everyone's in a private room, but I don't know a published literature on that. Yeah, I mean, it'd be fascinating to know, like, I mean, that's a big thing to satisfy this hospital, being in a semi-private room. 
but the, the cost to convert to you know, completely private is huge. Yes. But if we can make you know, cases that you know, we're going to keep patients safer and save money, then that offsets some of the cost. So I would implore you to yep. in the future take a look at that. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a great point, so thank you. I mean, the other thing is we do see an increase in C. difficile um, onset in the hospital in certain wards. We will go to daily bleach cleaning, and we can do that even when patients are in the room. Um, so we, we can address some of that, but that's a great question. Yep. What about in the nursing home setting? For how long do you continue precautions after treatment is completed? So, you know, this is each nursing home um, has their own policies, which is often why they want that test of cure and the argument that we say this is not, we don't test for cure because unfortunately, you know, we're using a PCR assay. It's not telling you of active shedding of, of, of toxin positive disease. You know, the, the issue is that um, many of our um, uh, affiliates that have uh, long-term care settings actually have gone to continuing the contact precautions when a patient with C. difficile is transferred to their facility. That's not the case across the board. This goes well beyond uh, C. difficile. Um, you know, there are nursing homes in greater Chicago where 30% of uh, the uh, patients there are colonized with CRE. Um, and so there's a lot of sharing of pathogens in these settings and unfortunately uh, not a lot of private rooms. Um, so I, ca I can't argue for one way or the other. We are looking at some of the policies, and I'll say our affiliates are going to continuing the precautions um, at least out to that four-week point. Yep. So I have a two-part thing for you, Michael. Great talk uh, first, though. Um, they both have to do with uh, uh, sort of fecal microbiome. Mm -hmm. So the first is you said that you had drunk the Kool-Aid about uh, fecal transplantation. I just want to urge you to never, never use that phrasing again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the second is, uh, people oftentimes will recommend to patients given antibiotic various interventions meant to try to reduce the likelihood of C. diff, kefir, and other things. What do you think? Uh, are we drinking the Kool-Aid on that one? So, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we had, we had discussed the, the data on this in, in conference. Um, there is, outside of uh, patients that have um, kind of impaired intestinal mucosa, and so if we think about our um, ID, IBD patients, our patients with graft-versus-host disease, there's probably little harm in its use for preventive. It's not clear there's much benefit, and there's, there's a lot of mixed data. Um, I will say in a lot of patients that are having issues with uh, diarrhea, non-C. difficile diarrhea on antibiotics, um, I, I have recommended um, probiotics. The reason for not doing it if you have impaired uh, uh, intestinal mucosa is we have seen cases of lactobacillus endocarditis where you have translocation of the actual probiotic. Um, and so you have to be careful of that if you've got somewhere you've got the potential for that translocation. Um, so the answer for prevention is probably um, little harm outside of the patients I've just mentioned. Not clear that there's benefit and we can't make a recommendation across the board on it. And as far as other things I won't mention, I didn't show the picture of the fecal cloud, which is what you have to think about when you walk into the patient's room. So. <laughs> yes? Is there any information on um, toilet flushing, aerosolizing, and There's a, there's a lovely uh, slow motion video that you can find online. It's pretty disturbing, actually. Uh, yes, the lid should be down. And, and hospitals don't always have lids.
Yes. It's uh, <laughs> well aware. Fi worth finding the video, though. Yeah. Michael, speaking of IBD patients, um, you showed a nice slide on the pathogenesis, and we, I think of CGF as being perhaps more than any other pathogen uh, drives TNF um, in a big way. Mm -hmm. And so uh, our guidelines in the GI societies for IBD patients have been to leave people, if they were previously on anti-TNFs, on their medications and treat them, not to stop them. Um, and that's been my practice. Um, and in fact, there have been some theory thrown out there that perhaps TNF blockers might even be beneficial in C. diff, uh, whereas we get pretty uh, worried about prednisone use mm -hmm. and other uh, immune suppressants. I'm just wondering in your experience with this, because I, I don't think there are a lot of data to help guide yeah. us. You know, what, do you think we're, that thinking is right, or do you, do you get concerned about that? What, what's your thought? So, you know, I think actually it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great point, and I think that the formation of the pseudomembrane and the level of colitis and vascular permeability is definitely driven by TNF-alpha and other, you know, interleukins. Um, I don't know of data. I'd actually be interested to, we should probably see if you have enough for a, a case series, but it's kind of an interesting thought. Yep. Thanks for an excellent talk. I have two related questions about the outpatient side. If somebody has a recurrence or a first infection as an outpatient, you are pretty specific about recommending vancomycin as your drug of choice, talking about inpatient infections. You didn't mention whether you believe that's the way to go for outpatients. And the second part of that is when somebody is discharged from the hospital or is an outpatient, you mentioned about the economic advantages of the compounded liquid formulation. What pharmacy do you use? Are you talking about our outpatient pharmacy or our inpatient? So it's the, yeah, no, the, the, sorry, that's a good point. It's the, it's the outpatient pharmacy here within the hospital um, that uh, can make that. And so if you're an ambulatory practice, you can get that same compounded orovancomycin for your patients. Um, the, the answer is um, I would use orovanco for everyone. I just know that we've had um, trouble with what pharmacies people can go to. And if we're making the argument and they can only get the pill, it may be that we start methanolizing because the cost of the pill is expensive. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Any last questions? We can call. Well, great. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. What's that? Oh, thank you.